is that I think it's on. So uh, thank you very much for coming back. You know the. Uh, um, Yes, I saw a hilarious story recently about someone who said that um, they had a boss that was so difficult that all the assistants would say, I think I have to move my car after like an hour on the job, and they would just never come back. (laughs) So thank you for coming back. I want to make a few comments and answer uh, some in answer to some questions that came up. Then I have something off of here that I wanted to read, and then then the PowerPoint presentation itself. I don't know if we're going to be here for another hour and a half. I think we're winding down here. Um, I, I want to say something though in terms of uh, that's interesting and important in terms of this this progression um, whereby we fall in love with the beautiful we enact a a Christ-like you know love for our neighbor we become good in other words and the result of that is that along the way uh, through this eros and agape and a a long-term commitment to that we do learn a lot of things. We learn things about ourselves, about the world. Um, we learn things about perhaps other people or uh, the, just the nature of, of life. In that sense, we're learning truths. But more importantly, it would seem that when we practice a sustained devotion to God and when we practice a sustained empathy towards other others around us and even towards nature we become true so yes we will learn the truth but that's not as important as actually becoming true becoming our true selves um, growing as the church fathers say from the image of God into the full-blown likeness of God. Um, Becoming our more authentic self. A self who isn't so easily um, knocked off course by every threat or every temptation so that, for example, our word we say something and then we don't live up to it or we make a commitment and then we can't keep it or we are deeply in love let's say with some particular art or but we never get around to, to doing anything with that so in, in, in contrast to that kind of untruthfulness to ourselves if we follow the beauty first path and persist in it along with the moral struggle that unfolds from that, we become true. And that is a wonderful thing, for one thing, because it means now we show up. And there's you know, this famous saying by someone whose name I will mention that 90% of life is just showing up. And there's a, a lot of truth to that in the sense that what that means is showing up where? Showing up to be in communion with others. Somehow, if we aren't on the beauty first path, our communion with others is impaired because we're not yet fully ourselves. So that's, that's something I wanted to, uh, to, to bring out together with something that's even better. At the end of this beauty, goodness, truth progression, and 
the end is achieved, um, I would say, fractally. And so I'm going to say what fractals mean too in a second. Um, At the end of this progression, we ourselves shine out to the world as beautiful. So when we encounter someone whose love for God is sustained and real, and then they've found the cross that God intends for them within that love, whatever that is, and they've fulfilled these two loves consistently and and become true, it's a beautiful thing. So if things start with theophany, things start when we behold spiritual beauty, If things start when we fall in love or we hear that place or that bit of music for the first time and we start this journey, at the end of it, we become theophany. You become. And St. Paul says this very clearly to the Thessalonians. He says, says, you know, you're just beginning Christians. He says, but I'm telling you, you shine like stars in this world. You shine like stars in this world. So that, that is, uh, that is the, the possibility of Christian life on an individual basis, a family basis, a parish basis, at every fractal scale. We, we have this possibility of following the threefold path and at the end of it, shining out as beautiful ourselves. And when we behold beauty in a world of chaos and difficult difficulties and struggles and so much violence and oppression, when we behold genuine beauty, it's an oasis. We enter a spiritual oasis. And so you become that oasis for others. So there's, there's that unfolding. I should say a little bit about what is a fractal, just because I tend to take that term for granted, but not in everyone uh, necessarily you know, uses it. Um, it's uh, the dictionary definition of a fractal, F-R-A-C-T-A-L, is very simple. It's just a, a, a shape repeating at many scales. And... Nature is full of examples like that. So, sometimes to demonstrate what a fractal is, they'll show a picture, an aerial photo of a coastline of a country, this coast, and they'll point out that whether you're seeing, you know, a few hundred meters or a few dozen kilometers or thousands of kilometers, the only way you know what scale you're looking at is by reference to other man-made shapes in the picture. Without that, it's, it's, it's the same shape, but at different scales. Somehow, the, in some odd way, I mean, it, it's, I mean, they had explanations through math, but somehow you add these irregular shapes at one scale, and it makes the same shape at a larger scale. Our blood vessels are constructed that way. They branch out. And at one scale, they have this branching shape. And if you go down closer, it's the same branch all the way down. The branches of a tree are fractal in that way as well. Broccoli. When I was a kid, I used to cut the broccoli. Ooh, 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 there it is. That same shape keeps appearing. That's a fractal. 
Um, so this is uh, this is a, an, an important uh, thing because, in a sense, our destiny is to become fractals of Christ. And the saints lived that out. The saints became people in whom you could see the basic shape of a human life uh, joined to Christ. Or, they weren't, they weren't Christ, because He is outside the fractal scale in a way. But we see those shapes, the hierarchies, are the fractals. Today, when we hear hierarchy, to us it means oppression. It means the higher crushes the lower, as I said a few moments ago. Right? A lot of times people don't want to have read at their wedding the, the, the epistle that the church ordains for weddings because it says that the man is the head of the woman. And they feel that's oppressive. At a minimum, we should consider the full picture of the hierarchy. God the Father is the head of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. The woman is the head of the children. And the children, under their feet, they are to crush the serpent's head. This was the prophecy given to Eve. Referred to Christ, but hopefully to your children too. They, they crush the serpent's head easily under their feet. In other words, they're not falling into destructive temptations. So we all are in this network. And we obey what's above us on the scale. And we pour out our life for what is below us. Is that still uh, insulting? or I don't know. But in any case, it's better than the usual picture. So it's a kind of exchange of love across fractal scales. Just, just by way of you know, saying that. Now, a question that came up a moment ago too was, where do we find this kind of comprehensive list of what the gospel is? So that we can really focus on it and try to live our life according to its complete dimensions. Well, we find it within the life of the tradition. But the reason we don't normally make, a, let's say, a list or something is because it's meant to kind of fill the whole creation. Christ's self-emptying, his taking on flesh, is meant to change everything in the world so that... This, this happened once to me, actually. I was, it happened on the island of Kalimnos, which I mentioned earlier. I was sitting with uh, a priest monk. We were late for the boat. And he had just gone to hear the confession of a woman who was dying of, of cancer. And he, was, he was extremely moved. And he came, and he, he was saying to us, um, he was saying to us, not really any details about her life. He was just saying instead, isn't it amazing, he said, that 
we're not grateful for this life we have when it's such a precious gift it doesn't last forever and he said he said you know even the birds confess Christ and glorify God well as he said this a true story we were in someone's kitchen and I was just tense we were late for the boat um as he said this, he was sitting on that, their couch, in their like a couch-like thing. The window behind him, a bird landed. Almost immediately after, he said, even the birds glorify God. And a second later, a bird landed and started screaming its head off in a kind of beautiful way. So when we ask, you know, where is our complete list of what is the gospel? But you see, that bird itself was announcing the good news. That creation loves God. Creation is obedient to Christ. Creation can be our, our, a book of revelation for us. And this was an old medieval idea as well. Somebody asked St. Anthony the Great once, they said, how can you sit out here without books? And St. Anthony actually was, I think, remained illiterate. He didn't know how to read. He said, my book, O philosopher, is nature, which I pick up and read whenever I wish. So, the heavens declare the glory of God. And we come to a more and more fuller picture of this possibility and the working of the Holy Spirit um, in every dimension of creation. Certainly, though, um, we can remember the words of St. Gregory Palamas, who said, even in heaven, even in paradise, we shall not go past the chalice. So, so, so we cannot lose, you know, those words. Unless you drink, eat my body and drink my blood, you shall have no life. You have no life in you, Christ said. And the Gospel of John, and it says, after that, many went away from him. They couldn't accept that those words. Um, but he is certainly that, and the possibility of this this communion uh, with each other, with those who have. Um, going on. Even a, a, certain, a certain kind of communion that we have with generations yet to come in the sense that we can, we can pray for them. Of course, we don't know, uh, you know how many generations are left, but we can certainly pray for that. So that isn't a good answer, but it's a, it's a partial answer of um, why in the fullness of the church we don't try to say, write it down so clearly. But the problem is, in the meantime, we're falling for a shorter, uh, reduced version of the gospel. And we're missing out on the fullness of our destination. Um, is that an okay answer to your... Yeah, that's great. Thanks, thanks. So, um, certainly, you know, throughout the scripture, I think, you know, one of the best... Um, there's a tradition in the church. I'm not like, I don't really go to monasteries that often, so I don't know why all my stories are monastic stories today. But there's a tradition in the church that um, the world will end, not, won't end until all the angels who fell away from God are replaced by monks and nuns. 
and um, so uh, you know there's many things like that that are there's also like little stories like that that aren't exactly dogma or something but they're just kind of nice to think about um, you know the nuns I mean you have nuns up here living a kind of angelic life and of you know, constant prayer to God um, and that's all you know kind of this consolation <clears throat> yeah so yeah, so so it's beauty first and it's beauty last in a way because our life unfolds and it's fractal because the moment that you first hear the gospel or it just strikes your heart a little bit already within that the threefold path in a small way is completed. There's something beautiful about just even the person and their first flush of right this is why looking at photographs of yourself in the past are so poignant because when you look at photographs of your youth you realize how beautiful you were but at the time all you could feel was your incompleteness that you were unformed that you weren't so worth worthwhile you felt it was all in your future really it's fractal so just just as you are now you're, you're perfect and yet you have that tension being aware of your faults and your sins and wanting thirsting for more the thirst is everything but it's but it's fractal it's not it would be wrong to regard yourself at the beginning of your path or as somehow worthless or something or not to see that maybe, maybe we can see it better for others you know a baby is already perfect it doesn't have to it may be miserable because it's you know not potty trained or whatever it always wants more St. Maximus the Confessor said you know non-being desires being you know somehow that's how the world was created being desires well-being in other words it wants to be in the church we, we, we thirst for baptism we thirst for the Eucharist so being wants what he called well-being ecclesial life church life the mountain wants a chapel up there it does it, you know the lonely island wants there to be a, a little liturgy there you know being thirsts for well-being but then he said it doesn't stop there because well-being thirsts for the next stage which he called ever being and saint paul could say i don't know what's better for me to live and stay with you or to die and go and be with christ so certainly not everyone, but many of us, you know, reach a point at some point, or we have moments in our life when we thirst even to leave this world and be with Christ. And then Saint Gregory of Nyssa says it doesn't stop there either, because in heaven we grow from glory to glory. So this notion of eros or this thirst for for more of beauty and more of goodness and more of truth it's never ending and it it unfolds in our whole life and since it's never ending it would be wrong to feel that a person who's not complete is somehow worthless because that would mean everyone is permanently worthless no well, wherever you are at your at your current status 
whether it's a confused or a developed or a this or a that or whether you've found your dream job or whether it's you know just great difficulty uh, is already the beginning of something um, eternal and in itself you know is worthy of our respect and veneration. In terms of this beauty first, too, um, and I promise we will get to the slideshow, St. Seraphim of Seraph, you know, this is a story that's worth telling. He said, once, he was a great saint in, in Russia, as you may know, and one of the holier saints that we read about. And one time a bishop visited him together with a, a wealthy donor from the diocese. And they came into the cell of the saint. And they sat down and the saint turned to the businessman and he said, You're struggling with these three sins. And you've tried these two things. And nothing's worked. But now I want you to try this. And it will work. And the businessman, businessman simply thanked him and he kissed his hand and he left. And the bishop turned to the same and he said, I've known that man for 20 years. I had no idea he was struggling with any of those things. And you meet him for the first time and you know all these things. How did you know? And the saint spoke very directly and it's a, it's a good lesson for all of us. He said, I didn't know. He said, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't read the man's brain or something. But I know when it's the Holy Spirit telling me to speak. And when the Spirit tells me to speak, I speak. I knew the Spirit wanted me to... But I don't know the inner... Maybe the Spirit wanted me to be embarrassed by saying the wrong thing. Maybe the Spirit wanted me to say the wrong thing that would, that would lead him to, for, you know, to defend himself. Who knows? And that's true in our spiritual lives as well. Elder Porfirio said... The soul is deep, only God can know it. I cannot know the full mystery of you. And as much as I may think I might have suggestions or advice for another person, still, as much as there is a hierarchy, this is important too, God doesn't only relate to us through the hierarchy, like you know, levels of a waterfall spilling over, St. Dionysius says he relates to us that way and also directly to each level. It's both. It's both what we might call the Catholic vision and the Protestant vision. <laughs> he said it's both. And that's, that has to be true as we take in the spiritual teaching of someone from the seminary, like myself. That yes, I have words to say. If they're good for you and salvific for you, let, so be it. But God has his own plan for you. He loves you more than I do and in his own way, his own special way. And is prepared to help you unfold your life uh, in the way that um, will be best for your salvation and the salvation of those around you. Um, yeah, so those were just some kind of comments I wanted to make before we get to uh, this second thing here. <clears throat> Are we doing Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, that's a good idea. 
So, as I have uh, envisioned it, um, and and I'm going to plug this in in just one more second, and have in part described it, the Orthodox spiritual process involves a threefold path uh, from non-being through beauty, then goodness and truth. And in this path, we're awakened from a kind of sleep, or from sin, or from a formlessness, the formlessness of death. Can you repeat that one more time with so, so as I have described it, sure, the orthodox spiritual process involves this threefold path. We, we kind of start awaiting, you know, those who sat in darkness. And then step one, have seen a great light, beauty comes involved. And then within the beautiful we find the good, we find our cross. I mean, just say, oh, oh I, I heard someone playing the piano, I, I loved it. I wanted to learn. And we learn, well, what's the cross involved in learning to play the piano? Well, then we have, to, we have to carry that cross, unless we decide, okay, it's a little too much. So we, we practice that goodness and we become true. And this is how we arise from formlessness. We arise from a kind of sleep wakes us up, right? Like my student said, I mentioned last night, she said, I can almost not imagine my inner world, what it was like as a little girl before I heard about God. So it's a kind of formless chaos. So what I want to talk about a little bit in this much shorter presentation is that it's a little concerning to me, but much more so to other people, if I'm not the only person we struggle with a kind of formlessness in our built environment, our, our towns, our cities, our villages. We struggle to create the beauty that other cultures, other civilizations, other eras seem to generate automatically. And I mentioned the name of this fellow, James Howard Kunstler, in his beautiful book, The Geography of Nowhere. He said, it's a national security issue. Who will fight and die for uh, the strip mall? What, 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 what is the world, the beautiful environment that we're meant to be creating? Where did it go? And maybe we even have this kind of sad sense that even if you do see a beautiful part of the country, you know, with a village and farm or whatever it is, or even if it's a neighborhood, you know that it's only a matter of time before it'll be, you know, somehow ruined. Unless it's a national park, unless there's no people in it. And that's, it's kind of sad. There's a kind of egalitarianism, and I suppose that's good, that every place in America has come to look exactly like every other place. I think the problem is that it all looks not very good. It doesn't have good shape. It, it doesn't have form. Somehow it has not arisen. And in fact, we seem to be sinking away many times from good form, good shape. I'm driving along the, uh, the uh, highway there. What's the name of this? Storo Drive in Boston. 
have so many signs, you know, this is the height limit, bridges coming. But every, every week or two, the truck hits the, the bridges. But anyway, it happened again last, last week. <laughs> Why don't they just raise the bridges? But anyway, um, but as you look in the skyline, you see, well, it's really the high rises. The only variety is the variety to be found in a collection of toddler's blocks. I mean, they just... They're impressive, these buildings. They're tall, they're large, they're expensive. They're feats of engineering. Yeah, I'm impressed. I am. I admit that. But you have to admit that unless darkness falls and the lights come on, it's not beautiful. It looks extremely simplistic. We seem to be building in a way that is jumbled. It is clear that America is a place where we come to get things done. But many of us are wondering whether the fact that we cannot work together to generate profound social beauty in our cities, towns, and villages could be a sign of of something to worry about. So let me launch this, uh, let me plug this in and launch this. I don't know exactly how do it, but I will figure it out here. Slideshow. Okay. Oops. It went to the end. Okay. Let's see if this comes on. Now. Let's see. Let's see if this will... Maybe that will do it. Ah, yeah, so that, that does it, I think. And I think it gives me the power to change then when the... Okay, so this will look even better at night, but I wanted to, uh, to point, start with this uh, image. Um, I think I even have a, a laser pointer. So this is a, a famous place on the Holy Mountain. It's known as Simonopetra, and it's a it's a it's a building that a uh, large monastery that maybe I don't know maybe 80 or so monks or maybe 60 you can live there. You can see how there's a rock, a cliff, goes down you know hundreds of meters into the sea, um, and they they built the wall straight out of the cliff. It's almost an island of rock all the way around, but here there is a, a narrow connection to the rest of the land. And they even have some kind of looks like an aqueduct there. Um, what did I want to point out about this? Uh, about this, first of all, it's a, it's a place that started um, with a theophany. So Saint Simon, the monk who founded this monastery, um, I don't know, eight, eight nine hundred years ago or so, he was living in a cave, which from here is sort of along this roadway, and it's, it's sort of towards us, it's like about from where where the, you can see this from about where the cave was. And he had a, a vision one night. He saw the star of Bethlehem actually uh, descending over this, and he mystically was transported to the birth of Christ. And he understood a calling to build a monastery here. Um, Simonos Petras Monastery um, has had good times and bad times like any monastery. The, a person that I mentioned earlier, Eldra Milianos, this one who had this vision um, where he saw all of creation reciting the Jesus prayer. He, after that vision, he became 
uh, just people just flocked to him and he is the person who got monastic life going again at Meteora which is all cliff monasteries like this in another part of Greece and the monks here were getting very old they were all in their 70s and they invited him to come and he did and he took over and he rebuilt this he, not the buildings they were all refurbished but he repopulated it and then he also um, became the spiritual father of a convent that was empty. There were no nuns, called Ormelia, today the largest convent in Greece with about 120 nuns. And they had the most famous choir. So everywhere he went, of course, he generated, uh, through the Holy Spirit, he generated um, a profound brotherhood and a profound order, a lot of beauty. Um, St. Nectarios, whose memory we celebrated yesterday, he wrote a beautiful poem, the Panagia. He actually wrote, I see sometimes this comes in and out. He, he wrote a, be- a whole book of poems to the Panagia. It was the monks here at Simonos Petras who set that to music. This um, Agni Parthena, this famous song that uh, our young people really, really love. So that's, uh, this is um, something about this. What we see here um, is that you can create something quite beautiful um, without really a lot of ornament. It's, all the elements are simple. A wall, of course, built brilliantly into the sides. Uh, incidentally, um, I don't know when uh, you know that ability to build on a cliff, a, a stable, you know, like a tabletop on a cliff like that, you know, came out. But the, the Acropolis is exactly like that. The Acropolis and Meteora are the same technology. I mean, it's just, and I don't know how you do that because I don't know how you fix those bricks into the mountain at the. He, fam- he famously said to, so this is Simonos Petrus for those who are listening on. He famously said, I was told when I went there by a monk, he said, uh, when he died, he said to the monks, don't worry about earthquakes. I've prayed and no earthquakes will knock you off this cliff. So, but I can't say the same for fire. <laughs> I don't know why, but they have had some great fires. Their most famous relic here, the most famous thing that they, that they have, uh, is the, um, the hand of St. Mary Magdalene, who touched Christ immediately after his resurrection. And Christ said, you know, don't touch me, I haven't ascended yet. Well, I have venerated her hand, it's still, the skin is still on it, and it's, and it's famous because it's warm, it still has bodily warmth. So it's, um, in the 1800s, when the monastery suffered a, a terrible fire, the abbot took Mary Magdalene's hand and he traveled throughout Russia. And so people could venerate, and the money that they donated rebuilt the monastery. So again, in terms of the, uh, the architecture, you can see, you know, what, that's, this is all sea. Of course, that's the sky. This is the beginning of the, the mountain that goes up here. Um, simple elements of nature, simple walls, uh, simple balconies. Um, you can see how much profound beauty can be generated um, out of irregularity. And the fact that no detail is remarkable. No detail in particular is so remarkable. We can have some kind of a clutter here. But something profound 
um, singular, even a kind of pinnacle of beauty, is you know the total image. It's a kind of metaphor for life, of course, that grandeur can come from a combination of simplicities. Right? Grandeur can, and sometimes you know we know that with say our grandparents or memories of our grandparents, that then their life may have been quite simple, but the solidness of each element, the depth, the care of each element added up to something grand. There's a grandeur to the life. So I, I, I bring this, uh, this first of all here as an example of spiritual beauty. Let's see if I got this right. Now, as we go through these slides, here's a question that uh, I was taught to ask. I'll say in a moment by whom. But it is, it is um, two different questions that helps you to evaluate the, the spiritual power of a work of art or a building. The, the bottom question is, is sort of for the, you know, the viewer, let's say. Someone like me, I'm not an architect, I'm not a painter. And if I, if I look at something beautiful and compare it with something else claiming to be beautiful, ask myself this kind of crazy question. Which one is the truest picture of my soul? So let's go back to this. Well, that's an interesting question. Is, is this a true picture of my soul? Right, this is not a truth-first question. It's kind of a meaningless question in a way. Yet somehow, it's the right question. <laughs> is this a true picture of my soul? Yeah, it, 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 there's something deep in my soul that resonates with that. And then the, the top question here is a question for the artist or the architect, the person trying to build beauty. In all the variations I can think of, which one makes me feel most whole in myself? Which one makes me feel most whole in myself? Because beauty is beauty for us. It is God's gift to us. So it's going to somehow touch our soul and it's going to somehow grant a certain respite to my soul. Does this make me feel whole in myself? Yes. When I'm driving on Surro Drive, and, I, and I, I briefly debated whether to put like the slides of the bad stuff up, and I said, forget it. And I look out at the skyline over in Cambridge. It does not make me feel whole in myself. It, it makes me feel sad, like I'm living in a civilization where, our, where we can't figure it out. <laughs> That's what it makes me feel like. It does not make me feel whole in myself. Okay. So these are two good questions. Which one is the truest picture of my soul? Or which one makes me feel most whole in myself? Question for, for art in general. general. Um, here's a painting. Uh, why did Vincent uh, van Gogh make it in there? Uh, first of all, so I could show off the Dutch, Dutch pronunciation of his name, which is Van Gogh. It is. I went to the, the Van Gogh Museum in, in uh, Amsterdam one time. This is a painting from 1890 or so, 1888, 1890, that range. Um, does this painting make me feel whole in myself? 
Yeah, absolutely, right. And it also has, first of all, you know, it, uh, being nature, of course, it has that fractal thing, but that's nothing special. There's something else about the way it vibrates with simplicity, and um, we'll get to that in a second. And serenity, the vivid excitement and serenity coexisting here. Oh, uh, Metropolitan uh, Savas, our Bishop of the Pittsburgh Metropolis, when he was a, excuse me, before he became a priest, he was a, um, a student at Oxford, and he went to visit um, Essex, where Father Sophroni Sakharov was, the monk I mentioned last night. And somebody had a book of Van Gogh's paintings and was looking through them. So the future Metropolitan Savas, the future bishop, was looking through them. And the saint, Father Sophroni, came behind him and he said, those aren't paintings you're looking at, you know. And he said, what do you mean, Father? He said, they're icons. This is what Father Sophroni's evaluation of Van Gogh. <laughs> but nevertheless, as a as having an element of spiritual beauty. Oh, I have to say this too, because you can't say the name Van Gogh without uh, people thinking something negative about him. Um, uh, but you know, he he he. Uh, I mean. The, the, at any rate, he did not take his own life. That's a, a common misconception. But what happened was, he was for a walk in the country, and boys, young men were playing with a gun, and he was shot. And when he staggered back into town, he simply said, only I am to blame. And from this, people misunderstood him to me that he had taken his own life. But he was simply trying to protect the children. So there's Van Gogh. Uh, this is a painting I, I really like. I mean, not a painting, but a, just a photograph for the rain here. Let's see. Uh, you can see in this uh, the spiritual beauty. There's a kind of, uh, again, a deep simplicity there. It's ordinary, but there's something profound happening. It's really even hard to put your finger on what that is. I don't know if in a different light or without the rain it would look so profound. But there's, there's something about the invitation here, the mystery. There's an affirmation of life. You feel whole in yourself to see that photograph. You don't need to go anywhere. You don't even know, need to know where it is. You're kind of complete. Incidentally, I believe it's, it might be from the monastery in Arizona. Yes. It is, isn't it? And, but, it but it is, there is a, you know, here's that lion just hanging around there. He's not in a rush to go anywhere. And, uh, and, and we're sitting there, we're not either. There's a, a kind of spiritual peace there. That just an ordinary scene. It looks a little bit better on my screen than it does up here, but soon the sun will set behind me. Uh, this, of course, is Notre Dame. So there are three so called rose windows. Uh, this is, of course, Notre Dame in Paris. I think this is the west window, uh, but I'm not you know, really an expert. So um, I think it's you know on the, the long end of the. When was the Notre Dame built? Um, between 1160 and 1260, it was a, a multi-year process, right? So, I mean that 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 too, that too, that too is interesting thing about the art of other eras that 
they could establish a beautiful vision and even though the original artist died and generations passed the vision was completed as intended the windows date to about I think 1225 of course what happened in 1204 was the, the fall of Constantinople to the fourth crusade so what happened with the fourth crusade led by the Venetians and Venice was the, the daughter city of Constantinople really I mean it was it, it, it survived the Dark Ages through its trade and contact with Constantinople. Um, and it, sadly, it attacked the mother, as it were. Um, and what happened is that for 57 years, the, um, the Crusaders had the city, and they looted things systematically. And most of what they took wound up in uh, Italy, or I think Germany. Most, uh, in terms of relics, because everybody wanted saints' relics. Um, and then the rest of Europe got kind of, they scrambled for bits and pieces. And does anyone know what Notre Dame got, what the French got from the Fourth Crusade? They got the crown of thorns. So it's, uh, it's in a, a kind of museum there. Um, and on Fridays during Lent, it's, it's brought out for veneration are the cases but the thorns the crown of thorns so was it the real crown of thorns or you know at any rate from the year 700 until today that was considered to be the real crown of thorns and it's there the, the Swedes didn't get much. For one thing, they were defending Constantinople because the Vikings were the secret service of the Byzantine emperors, if, as you may know. Um, but they did eventually get one, th- one thorn from the crown of thorns. And, uh, and I can't remember the name, actually, of the city in Sweden where, the, where it, that was venerated. It became the center of pilgrimage for all of Scandinavia. Hundreds of miles along journeys people would take to venerate, which is a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing to do. But when the Protestant Reformation began to hit Sweden, someone wisely took the thorn and they secreted it in one of the walls of the cathedral. No one knows where. <laughs> because it would have been simply destroyed otherwise. So that's uh, one of the famous rose windows, as I said. I think there are three. And again, you can see this combination of, uh, of energy and repose here. Here's another beautiful picture for your... Uh, this is uh, a, a refectory. I, I'm not sure I know which... It's an Athenite monastery. You can see the... Does anyone know? Here's the, here's the plates lined up. Yeah? Okay. So this is, uh, this is you know, a nice place to eat. <laughs> of course, modeled in a way on the church, only because um, the church is modeled on, you know, uh, the mystical supper. So, you know, it goes both ways, the action. Here you can see, well, first of all, the light is, uh, is very unique. Somehow, a light coming from within the walls, very orthodox concept. Um, if you've heard of the architect Andrew Gold, uh, this great orthodox architect, he writes about this. And, and just, again, the kind of the, the order um, combined with some sort of destination there. 
Let's see if I have any other. Oops. So here are some principles of spiritual beauty in art and architecture. Often a, uh, a profound building will get better with time, age, or even wear. Right, you can see that uh, it's not a problem that this is old and certain things are getting worn out. Uh, it only gets better because of that. See the, the structured ceiling there. Um, this is uh, this is many many times you know things that aren't sort of destined for beauty. You know, with age they don't. So this gives us all hope. If we weren't blessed to be you know the prom king and queen in high school, but we have the spiritual beauty, we're getting better. With, what's the saying that at, by the age of 60 we have the face that we deserve but and that's not what we are born with the, um, so this, uh, this unfolding um, within the building of certain principles somehow it's, uh, it's, it's established there um, these spiritual buildings they point beyond themselves they point beyond themselves but they also in a second step I think we can see they point beyond being itself. What is, the, what, is this, what is this mystery that somehow I'm invited to here? It's hard to say. I mean, I've sat in places like this. It's something beyond being, right? I don't know that I see it as much here, the mystery beyond being, but yes, I, I think I do. Um, here in corners of it, I do. Anyway, let's go back to the, the principles. Often, uh, spiritually beautiful uh, buildings or art induce both a spiritual calm and a, and a spiritual excitement. They make those opposites kind of coincide. St. Maximus the Confessor described this as a property of life in God. He called it the ever-moving rest. The ever-moving rest. And there's, uh, and saintly people have that. They exude that when you're with saintly elders in the church. So there's kind of a, a deep calm, but there's something is happening. It's the opposite of a, of a sleep. Um, yes, but it's also the opposite of agitation. And this is one of my favorite uh, principles, that great art carries with it a sense of both surprise and inevitability. When you look at this, it's a surprise. I hadn't imagined something like this. But at the same moment, it is just the way it has to be. All right. This, to some extent, here. Maybe more there, I don't know. Certainly here. That's quite surprising. What is this doing here? Who... who who, you know, risked their lives and their fortunes to build this? And yet the moment you see it, you know, the world without this monastery there would be an, impo- an impoverished world. Right? It's, it's sort of meant to be there. Right? That's, that is a, an incredible thing when an artist can combine that. Like, okay, this is just, you know... Again, this kind of it makes you feel whole in yourself. Okay, so these are some principles that I've noticed within spiritual beauty. Here's another kind of, uh, I think, am I getting a reflection there? Maybe if I step. Here's another 
this wall that kind of suggests both surprise and inevitability, right? Wow, who built a cliff inside this church? A sheer thing. And yet, the massiveness of the wall suggests some kind of permanence. This is a particularly beautiful icon of the, of the Mother of God here. This is... Um, uh, this is an icon, it doesn't come out here, but it's an icon of Christ's face. And they say that during the Hesychastic era, when St. Paisius Velichkovsky recovered the, the Greek Philokalia, translated it into uh, Slavonic, and the, the prayer of the heart got really cooking again in the uh, Slavonic world, Slavic world, that they developed this concept while saying the Jesus prayer of having an icon of Christ's face. Just the whole icon is the face. It's beautiful. Um, this church is helped by the fact that it was founded by uh, two saints. Uh, St. John of San Francisco uh, was, was the, uh, one of the, uh, the architect, but the, the first, I think. And uh, Father Nicholas Pecatoris, who reposed in, I think, 1997. Two, uh, two Russian saints. It's the Rocor uh, Parish of St. John, the forerunner in Washington, D.C. I know it uh, well from those years there. It's, uh, it's a beautiful church. <clears throat> oh, I just threw this up here because uh, I think you have here in Portland um, a center that studies uh, positive urban order inspired by the works of Christopher Alexander. He is really uh, the, the great, uh, one of the great, probably the best person in the architectural world reflecting on how we generate true form, true order, true architectural order. So I threw that in there. Um, I don't know where this is in Russia, but uh, here again we see something, a kind of solidity, the mass here, um, the surprise of the flowers, um, and really the whole picture is, has both a surprise and inevitability. I mean, the reason we have this icon in this is so people can come here looking like that and do that. There's an, there's an inevitability to the, the whole scene. She's part of the art. Right, and she, she's, you know, she's for that moment. So I, I like that one as well. Ooh, yeah. This is the, uh, the Sala House in Albany, California. I think uh, from this house, which by the way, I don't think looks that great from the outside. Um, you can uh, you can see the uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, or it's sort of like kind of north of San Francisco, maybe looking south. But this is uh, an entryway too that has these nice surprises. This couch underneath. This is what you see when you come in the front door of the house. Um, and again, it is a space that makes you feel whole within yourself. Um, Yes, my soul. This is a picture of my soul here. And um, it too has a kind of serenity, but without being a sort of dead or something. It's, it's, a, lot, it's a lively serenity. 
yeah, that's a real picture, apparently. And uh, of course, you know, I don't know, you know, um, photographers now are tricky, and they can do great things with filters. So I, I don't know, you know, what is really uh, happening there. Oh, um, of course, it looks like summer or spring or something in probably Russia, and. Um, the inevitability aspect of that that solid uh, church um, set on its little island in the river here, perhaps, or a lake, I don't know. Um, the way it enhances the beauty of the lake by creating this, ref- this its, re- its own reflection. You know, that's a kind of a nice uh, thing there. It really is. When I talk about inevitability, um, they have built a part of nature. It's clear that they had fulfilled nature. This is more beautiful than all that nature without the church. They have adorned nature itself. And what we were talking about before, that creation longs for God, and it longs for us. Like the Lion King. You're the Lion. You're the Lion King. And until you find your, your throne there under God, creation around you is suffering. But when you do find it, creation around you, it's, 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 it's going to say thank you. Here's some other uh, thoughts about uh, principles for spiritual art. It it centers us, but there is a certain destabilization. What do I mean by that here? Because I feel centered here, but I also feel like maybe I want to go there and not be here. (laughs) Maybe, maybe Maybe that's a place that has some mystery that I don't know yet. Destabilizing in that sense, not an emotional stabilization, but a a calling. Great art carries a dynamism in time. There is something about seeing it that defines an epoch. We can even say that art creates time in the sense that we categorize epochs by their art or their architecture. It gives meaning and hope to the passage of time. Somehow great spiritual art is both serious and joyful. And there's a a fullness of this coincidence, right? None of these buildings is depressing. They're solid, but there's joy. It's a seriousness, but there's nothing. It's not pulling you down. There's there's the possibility of joy here. This looks like Christmas for some reason, maybe because she's wearing red. And this even in person, even more so. It's, it's not... There's, this joy is, 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 is brought in here. It, it centers me when I walk into this church, and it pulls me out of myself at the same time. Let's go back. Here's Andrew Gold's Ascension. Is anyone familiar with this church? In, uh, is it, is it uh, Charlotte South or North Carolina? Charleston, South Carolina, then, right? So that's Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, his uh, aim here, um, and this is not really the best aspect of the church. The internal views are better, and I don't have them actually, but um, his aim here was to create something that um, 
head into the broad shape of an Orthodox church, but somehow was, you know, respectful of the vernacular of other buildings in Charleston, Charlotte, Charlotte, and Charlotte. And I and I think they were able to do something here too. And they built incrementally. The parish seems to have done a lot of work themselves there. The dome was actually wood, uh, and then covered with you know metal. But they. I think I have some other pictures here. Let's see if that one. I don't know. Didn't he? No. I was wondering if that's the most beautiful church I've seen. Okay, so, so, so yeah. Uh, you recognize this, of course. Uh, again, I, I, this is, you know, maybe I'll try to take some of these slides and just mail them to you if you're on the mailing list. You can see them you know, better on your own computer. But this is, of course, what they call the edicule. So when St. Helen um, came to the Holy Land in the 4th century, she brought a lot of money and a lot of soldiers and Roman engineers with her. And, um, you know, she found where the, the, the oral tradition of where the tomb of Christ was, it's in here. And, and then she built this church around it. And um, I don't know if this is the original or if this is the one built by Justinian after. That's a, you know... And then to get from here to Golgotha, you have to go this way and kind of around the corner, and Golgotha is higher up. Um, have any of you been to Jerusalem before? So this is, you'll recognize this, and it's, um, that's a, a good place to go. Um, what happened with the edicule was that they kept every couple of cent- every four or five hundred years they would build a church over the church that was over the tomb, and they just kept adding churches. And in our day, instead of doing that, we just added these steel girders to shore this up because it was collapsing. Um, a year or two ago, they did um, a big excavation here, and I, I haven't seen the photos from that yet, but I don't know if the... I think maybe they don't have these girders anymore. This looks to be on Pasca itself. So, as you know, everyone... A Pasca there, for some reason, is celebrated in the morning, 10 or 11 a.m., local time, and the Patriarch of Jerusalem goes in and he comes out with the holy fire. Um... Again, you know, we have a, a, a great um, repose together with a great motion here. It's not, there's a lot of life here, but no busyness in a way that is, you know, anxiety inducing or something. It's just, nope, this is life, but also repose. This is a detail from Hagia Sophia in uh, Constantinople. Um, looking through from the main floor of the nave of these columns and these so-called basket capitals here. Again, there's a solidity there. This is actually the... Um, it's a great photograph, of course, uh, taken by someone. It's, of course, an exterior of that uh, Andrew Gold Church in Charleston. Charleston. And... Uh, and when we can see here, you know, the, the pillar, um, you know, the arch, a lot of you know classical forms. But but this doesn't. This is not like anything we've seen before. There's something. Again, it carries carries that aura of inevitability as well as surprise. I thought I'd go into some kind of column-like figures. This is Saint Demetrius, I think, and. Uh, 
again, what is uh, pointing beyond this world, a rendition of the person in his eternal perspective, in the perspective of his life in God. It isn't merely uh, in that face, his earthly existence, but something more. I like this uh, column. It it reminds me of of this column, and somehow, uh, this of course is Elder Paisios, uh, as we said, uh, as Father said, his spiritual father, Sinner Arsenius of Cappadocia, was celebrated today. And um, there he is outside his uh, cell. I don't understand what this kind of spacing is, but it doesn't really matter. This, is, this composition is quite perfect, isn't it? That, um, yes, that there's someone serene, but extremely alive. I don't know how I would look at it if I didn't know who it was. So maybe my eyes are not objective. But um, what you can't see here is a tiny icon of the Virgin Mary on the cross. It is um, the icon of Panagia Jerusalemitisa of Jerusalem. Because um, once when he was praying in his cell, the Mother of God walked through these doors and um, passed him as he was kneeling. And he saw her face and he said to his disciples that she looks exactly like the icon of Panagia Jerusalem there. I think I'm just about. And that is the Panagia of Jerusalem. Here the columns have come back. There's a four of them there, at least three or four. And the solidity, um, also that aura of inevitability, that this is not a whimsical creation, but this is just, it's somehow the artist has created all this to suggest that this is just the way it has to be. This is just the way it has to be. And yet that experience of inevitability is not oppressive, but still contains that surprise of something, uh, a gift of love, an unmerited gift of love to us that is so, uh, so tailored to our individual existence that uh, you know, we, we think of it as beautiful. Um, yeah, so, so these are just some uh, slides I wanted to show you in terms of, um, as I said uh, in the earlier talk, because we have this command to love God in this way, this totalizing way through Eros, when we, um, when we create uh, beautiful art, and I think there are, as a hierarchy, there are other things that we might create outside the church, beautiful as well. Um, that we announce to people their destiny, which is to worship God, but we also make that destiny possible. We make it possible for them to experience this eros for Christ. It's hard um, to look at this picture and not feel like, yes, I would like to give more of myself to Christ. It's, it's, it's hard to resist that. You can resist it, you can turn the page, but it, it's, I mean, I would like to point out that the photograph itself is a work of art. I mean, it's like there's something, as a spiritual quality and power. Yes, it derives from the saint himself, but it makes it possible for us to begin the spiritual journey. We've encountered spiritual beauty. We know 
uh, like those Russian envoys, and we cannot forget that beauty. You know, they did not want. Where, it wasn't Kiev, no, it was Sevastopol, wherever they were sent from. We're not coming back. We're back, but we're leaving. Um, there's something more for us. Yeah, so uh, uh, we're very grateful for this, uh, for some of these uh, images. Um, this, too, and of course, the center of the universe for us is the empty tomb. Um, Again, here, this basic um, encounter that we have here with spiritual beauty opening us up to something else. You know, it's maybe we can't stare at these pictures indefinitely, but certainly um, an encounter like this can flavor the rest of our life. You have to kind of pause. It's a different thing, right? But you can pause and say, yes, there's a a kind of a luminous ground there. There is some... some contact with the transcendent right and all of these uh, to finish with that again all these uh, kind of encounters um, I think that the biggest mistake that I make in explaining the beauty first way and I promise this will be the last comment is that we still might think of beauty as something so, sort of objectively out there But really, the beauty that starts our life is a beauty that we experience as beauty for us. It's somehow, we understand that it's a gift to us in particular. Even though my destiny is not to live at this monastery, when I see that picture, I understand that God loves me in particular. So, so it is not a philosophical definition of beauty, but it is an encounter with beauty for us. Right? And, and like, like I said, when I say for us, I don't mean that I'm going to live there or that I'm going to you know, pluck those trees or that Van Gogh painted that for me. I just mean that somehow my soul recognizes that this is intended for me also and me in particular. And therefore, a beginning is possible. Right. Okay, I'm just going to leave that. Um, any any comments or uh, or corrections or anything? It says we've been at this for about 39 minutes. So, um, can I call on people using the laser pointer? Just kidding. <laughs> well, what I think? No. Okay. Yes. So, in response. Um, in response. As we see some of these things of beauty around us, yeah. some things speak to us more than others do. Absolutely, yeah. So, for instance, when I was first looking at orthodoxy as an adult, I the um, more westernized iconography of the more of the later Russian tradition was more comfortable for me because it was closer to the type of art that I was used to as growing up in America. But now over the years, I I find that more Byzantine style iconography speaks to me more in in terms of just my initial response to it. But 
anyway, I, I was just thinking about that in terms of looking at the different things. Some of them, it's a, it was an easy, oh yes, I can... I can see how God is speaking to me through that particular image and other ones maybe not so much of an easy response. So how do we evaluate or think about that? I don't know if that makes any sense. That's a a good question. So, you know, why... I think um, we have to allow ourselves the freedom to not be moved by things that just aren't moving us, let's say, um, or to prefer, um, you know, one hymn or versus another, or we see this in the lives of the saints, that, you know, one saint might really speak to us, and another life is not interesting to us. And this doesn't mean that they aren't objectively beautiful, but the path requires um, certainly that we respect it all. Um, I certainly, you know, respect the work of museums and doing all that work. But I think it's a mistake to enter a, a great museum and try to look at every painting. You, you should almost be just, you know, like, you should just go to the, whatever pulls you and drink it in for as long as you want. This isn't, you know, a, a technical journal that you're reading. It's an encounter with something sublime and something that, you know, is, is answering your need right now. And, and in that sense is, a, is almost a medicine for you. And so, you know, in different times in my life, you know, I need different, let's say, nutritional, my nutritional needs vary. Or, so we, we, should, we have to have, um, we can't have like a kind of a, an oppressive sense of the canon as, you know, kind of controlling us. Because if I didn't put any paintings here from, say, the Novgorod style, I don't think I did, and that would, you know, be a, a different approach to, to icons. And yet, you know, that's also... Um, profound. Whenever I go to Moscow, I try to go to the Tretyakov and see Rublev's Trinity because, for one thing, it's just I'm amazed that not that many people come. I mean, you, if you sit there for an hour, which I try to do, you know, maybe tw- 10, 12 people go by, but that's not the Mona Lisa. I mean, the Mona Lisa, that's a postage stamp. It's so small, and you can hardly, you know, get close enough to see it. Um, but I, I think, at, you know, at different times, those uh, paintings or those, uh, those, the art, those whole, the holy art, you know, one might draw us or another, and I just have to be free with that. I skip all the other stuff. I just go straight there. Yeah. Uh, last night, I think it was the story of the convoys uh, from Russia, the idea that beauty is also rational. Right, so I'm just wondering if the, we can correlate these kind of comments, the beautiful for you and so on, with the idea that it's still rational. Yeah, um, so um, so somehow our, our aesthetic sense is our primary rational sense. And if we think in terms of... Um, Let's say we think in terms of of evolution. Every living thing um, was having to cope with its environment without brains. And they're having to cope successfully, whether they're bacteria or, you know, at any scale of life. And they're doing this mostly through sensation. They're somehow sensing what's in their environment and then they're reacting. So... 
I don't really believe in evolution, you know, for other reasons. I don't have a problem with the time scale. I just think randomness wouldn't do that. Um, nevertheless, I do have to say that, you know, somehow lots of things that aren't human are still, even today, you know, resolving problems and in getting around. And, and, and so, so our aesthetic sense is certainly a rational sense. And um, even if we had no faith, then we could still say that somehow many times that aesthetic reaction is faster and and in that sense more efficient telling us whom to trust whom not to trust when to leave you know when to stay those kind of things um, the thing is that in your life God is trying to do something for you now today that isn't necessarily identical with what he was trying to do a year ago so the messages that he's sending or that he intends you to receive may vary slightly, right? At one time, it may be to work harder, another time to, 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 to stop, or another time maybe to take a risk, another time to back off. And so I think in, in the same way, it's, it's rational that um, we're certainly grateful for the earlier messages that we followed. I'm not ungrateful for the fact that, you know, at the age of six, I loved Speed Racer. I did. I don't think that was an irrational thing. It's just that it's not the thing now. Except for the movie Speed Racer, which I own and have seen, you know, nine times. <laughs> because I think that's... He's a beauty first driver. Yeah, there's something very visceral there. Yeah. I wanted to come back to something that you had said in the talk earlier today. You said, when we adorn a church with beauty, we are... Um, what was it? We're helping people to fulfill the first and greatest commandment. I guess I'd ask if you could expand that a little bit because we don't often think of um, doing things in a beautiful way as something that um, uh, furthers people in their spiritual journey. That is like, in that sense, it's like, okay, if I teach someone about prayer or about fasting, clearly I am trying to move them along their spiritual journey. But the idea that somehow, you know, doing something with a building would, would do that. And how? Um, that's, that's interesting. So um, we know, for example, that you know, when the Byzantines uh, in, invented, um, let's see if just one of these will help, uh, when the Byzantines invented the orphanage as a concept, and they resolved, okay, we're going to train the orphans, you know, educate them, and give them a chance in life, not just house them, you know. Um, and then they, they hit on, you know, one of the important ways to get ready for life in society is music. That in classical education, the education from, I don't know, 500 or 800 BC, they thought training in music was an essential element of citizenship because you would have some sense of timing, of proportion, of measure, of symmetry, of... I mean, all you have to do is follow the comment thread of almost any video on YouTube and the, the, these are not musicians talking. Everyone is, is, is attacking, you know, in a, there's no harmony emerging. So this, by the way, is, you know, the, the origin of things like the Vienna Boys Choir because the orphanage eventually came west and with it it brought this, this notion of orphan choirs and 
Vivaldi composed for orphan choirs, and a lot of great composers did. You know that, but that was an old tradition from the fourth or fifth century in Byzantium. So. It's the same, you know, with people who are struggling with budget cuts and they want to teach the arts in school because they're thinking that somehow it's a it's an essential development of a well-rounded person um, is to have some appreciation for for that um, really the coinciding of beauty, goodness, and truth to let those three things come together, as you were mentioning the other day, that even are useful. Our tools should have a kind of beauty as well as a kind of, you know, purpose or, you know, logic to them. It's the ability to combine beauty, goodness, and truth that often marks something as, you know, worthy of preserving. Uh, That's not a great answer, is it? Um, Yeah. Well, there it is. Somehow, for the soul to become beautiful means that, that we will learn how to appreciate beauty you know, in others and in God and elsewhere. perfect sense and it's much better said than I could say it um, the dog whisperer said something very smart about the the, the dog who is you know a troubled dog he said um, first animal then dog then breed in other words first help it 
somehow its animal nature is, has, is being frustrated. It can't express what it is. Then its dog nature, and then finally it's you try to build. Think how we have, uh, we're troubled, we're lost, and we go to someone to talk. So now it's breed, now it's like intellectual guy. But our basic bodily nature isn't really dealt with. Whereas when we, when we come into church, you know, like you said, all the senses. Because if, if sensuality is the first sin, well the answer isn't to have no more senses, but it's just to use all the senses in a holy way. And now the inner organism comes, you know, more at peace. Now my thoughts start to change. You know, now I can be not just a, 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 a now I can be a, a human. And now, let's say I go to confession after I've been in church for a while, and now I can be a penitent, a, a repentant Christian. And then after I've spoken with Father, and he's, you know. And, and now I go and receive the Eucharist. It's, it's this progression of callings. Now I'm being divinized even with, through the Eucharist. So our animal nature has to be respected and, and, uh, and valued. If, we, if our entire concept of church is just lectures or words, then what about this other side of our, of our human nature that is just the way God made us? You know, where's the... Where's the it, was, it was literally last week that the, the newspapers were saying a headline that, you know, incense has psychoactive properties that uh, are shown to cure depression. Well, they didn't need to do research on that. They could have asked me. I mean, you just, that's, well, that's a no-brainer. So here we come to a church, you know, they say that, some people say smell is the most ancient of the, sen- the five senses. I don't know why they said that, but it has to do with, they teach that actually in medical school. It has to do with the structure of the brain. Well, why should we worship without using the sense of smell? Well, that is just a cruel, that's just a cruel thing to do. Because why would you leave that out of the equation when it's so fundamental to, to the, you know, the whole organism? So I think those are, those are excellent points. Yeah. Oh, in uh, your second slide, um, you, oh, you discuss uh, how spiritual art kind of uh, can create, also create a time in a way. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, could you tie that into uh, its relationship to like eschatology? Because do you think the time it creates is eschatological time? Yes. Is it is it because? Um, well, this is what we're gonna. Am I doing a session tomorrow too, Father? Yeah. T- tomorrow's session is called Meeting Christ in Kronos and Keros. So, so we have this, this basic theological idea that there's kind of ordinary time and there's Keros time. Keros time is the time that somehow of encounter with divinity. It's the beautiful time. And, uh, and without it, the other two times become kind of meaningless and they last forever, they go too quick, they have no order. Yeah. And yeah, so uh, just to be clear, tomorrow is Theology 101, Adult Education After Liturgy. He will be speaking. It's and not this, another part this of the retreat. It's a required So lecture. come to Liturgy and you can, you can enjoy that as well. We're soaking up as much as we can. Uh, other questions related to this? Questions? Anyone? 
Did you have a question? Yeah, I'm still far away. Okay. There we go. So my question is about something you kind of hinted on um, earlier when you were talking about the principles of spiritual beauty. Okay. And you said that it carries... Um, it, it centers us, but it is also destabilizing. What did you mean by that? It, it can be... Um, it seems like spiritual beauty might make us feel more grounded and complete. But also it's intoxicating. And it may make us sort of thirst for something more. So... A lot of people, um, I, I was that way more when I was younger, say in reading Lord of the Rings, they, they would just give anything to be able to go to Middle Earth. It's, they don't want to be here anymore. Um, and that is a destabilizing thing because, well, what kind of a career now are they going to have? I mean, you know, a medievalist or something? I mean, it's. But that kind of eros is, is so humanizing. And I, I always tell my students that you shouldn't feel that you're educated until at least once you wish you had been born in another time and place. You, you should at least once in your life feel that I wish I had been wholly other. Now you can be you. That's the, that's the reward for that. So there's, there's some kind of intoxicating destabilization. Because then, also then that, that renders us deeply hospitable to everyone else. And um, because we can, we can now imagine ourselves in their shoes and them in ours. And you know, now there's some kind of a possibility there of, of you know, genuine regard. Um, Yes. Does that answer the? So, so I hope there's that. Um, there have been many people I have read, including some saints, who have had very kind of particular opinions about what kind of art is good for us and what kind of art is bad for us. Mm -hmm. And you know those don't always line up with what feels good to you at the moment. I've also read some people talk about things being kind of too emotional or, or that are that are beautiful. And I'm just kind of wondering, what are some of your thoughts about how we would train our aesthetics? Um, how we would, what good art should be doing to us, kind of heart and spirit and how we tell the difference between something we like because we happen to like it, but maybe we're not in the right place, and what we like because it's where our soul should be growing into. Yes, those, those are really good questions. <laughs> and I look forward to reading your book about the... Uh... <laughs> Um, it, just to throw in there, the um, the uh, popularity that, say, Christian pop music has, and people would people who enjoy it would say this um, has this uh, wonderful response in me. And so, uh, as an example of that kind of yes, uh, yes, this you is... might say misdirected desire for beauty. Yes, the. Uh... This is a yeah, thing. I, I think, you know, in general, it's difficult to replace something with nothing. 
and people who are getting something out of, you know, everything. Boy, boy, these are sentences that could be said. Um, it, it, it's um, my my mentor, you know, in the PhD years was had two mentors, but one of them was the late Jane Jacobs, the city planner, and she said that. Um, you, you cannot fight emptiness. You can only encourage you know, what, is, what is the life that is happening in a place until it grows and, and fills the emptiness. Um, it's the same thought of Elder Porphyrios. You, know, you can't you know, put on boxing gloves and beat the darkness. You have to open a window. And I think... Um, to a degree, but, but only to a degree, these lists of art or books that are, aren't good for us is um, pointless. What we need is to have a, a kind of pilgrim, pilgrim approach to life where periodically we expose our, our uh, we encounter the highest art, the highest music, or even better, prayer. Which, in a sense, is you know beyond vision and beyond words, and uh, but it's and then the other things will find their place on some kind of hierarchy, and also the other thing is that there is a kind of directionality to life, so that compared to nothing, you know, a person who has really nothing spiritually, they may enter some kind of more emotional, sentimental a church experience and begin to come together. <clears throat> but for someone who has known the highest of church art and beauty, well, I suppose they could have an off day and then you get something out of that. But it's sort of now they're going the wrong direction. We, we kind of want to, you know, head in, um, you know, sort of head in the other way. Those are very mild statements. But I do wonder if, if um, my life would have been different if I had been raised in a, in a pre-rock and roll era. I wonder if, if, if it hadn't been invented, I wonder if I would have matured faster. Um, because I think that it, it, in its, it, I don't know, maybe this is wrong, but I think it kind of created a sense that my sins were okay and you could just dance to them. It didn't. I don't know that it helped me to to mature in the, in the way that, let's say, if I had been raised in a, an era of jazz only or something. I think I might have been a more refined soul by now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Any other questions? So I'm seeing in our current uh, kind of secular climate that, you know, postmodernism has really, you know, it kind of came to its apex and now it's really kind of collapsing on itself. Um, you know, what at one time was avant-garde is now becoming, you know, people are seeing the distortion of it and now they want what is beautiful again. Um, and so I think that the Orthodox Church um, and our failure
loyalty, our, our faithfulness to beauty, really has an opportunity to attract uh, hearts and minds. And um, in this era, you know, where we're where we are seeing, you know, craziness, like you suggested earlier, talking about how we can be in a world where there's men competing in women's sports and beating them, you know, and because they can just take the idea of relative, you know, relativistic relativism to that point and say, if, if I decide I'm a woman, I'm a woman, um, and I think is offending so many people, you know, even if they don't know why, even if they still align themselves kind of, you know, in their thought that, like, they want to be on the side of the, um, the underdog kind of idea or something, they're still offended by this concept that you can just pick and choose and, and be what you want. And I think they're looking for and seeking real beauty um, like we have in the church and in our tradition. And so I'm just wondering if what you're seeing as a as a professor and as a teacher, are you seeing that in the students or young people that you encounter? Are you seeing this hunger for beauty coming out of what we've made with this world, this kind of Frankenstein's monster we've created? Um, you know, I mean, it's it's um, you know every era, you know, kind of you know, produces a reaction in a way. I mean, maybe that's too Hegelian, but, you know, certainly... Um, you know, certainly our era isn't... Certainly our era has a lot good going on in it. Um, in general, it's, you know, probably when the reaction comes, we'll lose some of the good things, too. And... Hopefully, in the church, we can avoid those constant oscillations. Um, but I, I think, um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer really. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't really know where we're at or where we're going. I, I just, um, <laughs> it's hard to really discern. Um, and certainly, if you if you if you're on social media, you know, uh, as I said a, a couple nights ago, I said, "Why, boy, the the, uh, the 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 Republicans are getting destroyed on Facebook, but they're winning the election on Twitter." You know, it, it, as you go from platform to platform, you acquire a different sense of what's happening, and um, and if you put the, that media away entirely and really. Uh, Embrace Christ and the people around you, then you, you, you develop yet another perspective, and you discover, you know, how wonderful people are, and, um, and and so there's a lot of things happening at once, competing at once, and it's hard to know, you know, what will, what will, um, where that will go. Um, I, I often tell this story that I, I went to see Oprah one time um, because I had a relative who worked for Oprah and they had a lady warming up the crowd and she asked the, the audience different questions. She asked someone, she said, what do you like about Chicago? And the woman said, the southern hospitality. And, <laughs> and, and to, to all the white people in the audience, that was a meaningless statement. 
the pipeline between New Orleans and Chicago and the, the southern character of African American life in Chicago. Um, and, I, and I've always reflected that while well, a, a white woman working for Oprah for a long time has no sense of the African American community in Chicago. There are worlds within worlds within worlds in our country. And it's hard in following Christ because we want to be sensitive uh, to the pain of each person and, uh, and reach out to that. But one, what is good news for one person often is you know, discouraging for another. And um, somehow the Holy Spirit is going to have to straighten this out. And, and take us to the next step. Uh, no, no professor. Um, a couple years after I was at the Oprah show, I was giving a talk in Chicago, and I told the story again. And again, no one understood what... They all live in Chicago and have grown up there. So uh, I just, it just made me realize that you know, there are many worlds and many realities. God is present and loving each one of them. And, and what his purposes might be um, to bring people to, to his son, uh, and I believe to bring people to the chalice in the Orthodox Church, is hard to say, really, really hard to say. Uh, for example, uh, many people who are very nominal Christians are terrified about the rise of, of Islam in Europe. And I certainly understand what their, what their concern is. Um, but many times I feel with Muslims, Muslims I meet in Europe, yes, but they fear God. And, and we've lost that completely. But we're so blasé. So what, by what steps and what combinations uh, the Lord will redeem all his 7 billion people uh, is hard to say. I, I think it is at any rate. I showed you some pretty pictures. I mean, it, it really is. We believe to fall in love with Christ, to permit the Holy Spirit to work in us, uh, to support the church, that is enough. And these other things will work themselves out. Sorry, Father, for such a long answer. That's perfect. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for the many hours that you've offered to us. Uh, we're blessed to have you here, and we look forward to hearing more from you tomorrow in a mini-retreat right after liturgy. Um, and uh, at this point in time, we have about 15 minutes. If you'd like to briefly enjoy coffee and dessert, you may. But we have Vespers again in 15 minutes. So we look forward to seeing all of you at Vespers as well. Thank you very much, Dr. Petitsis.